Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We have a beautiful Thursday out here. You would not know that the coronavirus has the U.S. and the world gripped. But we are here to talk to Carmen Huitas Noble, and she is calling in from New York. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Just really, really great. Great. So you are a lawyer. Yes, I am. In the great state of New York. How did, how did you become a lawyer? Why did you go down that road? I decided to become a lawyer. I grew up in a poor and working class community, and I always knew that I wanted to help neighborhoods like I grew up in change and transform. And initially, I thought I would do social work, but then I became interested in the law. And when I went to law school at Fordham Law, I took a class where I was introduced to work with cooperatives by my now mentor and friend, Brian Glick. And that's how the first project that I worked on was working with Restaurant Opportunity Center of New York to create the first worker co-op in New York City, which was Colors. Okay. So you, um, and Colors is a, was it a worker owner? A worker owner restaurant. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what community did you grow up in? I grew up in Staten Island in the Bronx. So you're in the Bronx. And I, yes. And kind of came of age during a time when the Bronx, as people say, was burning. Um, and also came of age when the community pulled together to transform the Bronx and to stay and build the necessary um, delivery systems needed in terms of services, nonprofit organizations, tenant associations. All right. And about what, when the Bronx was burning, was that literally burning? And if so, what year was that? It was literally burning at what a lot of landlords were doing were abandoning their properties and then actually setting arson to the properties so they can get the insurance money because the tenants were not able to pay. So that's when you see the pictures of a lot of rubble in the South Bronx, even though the South Bronx looks very different today. Okay, so you grew up poor. I, I know that I grew up poor in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you thought you wanted to be a social worker because you wanted to help people. And somewhere you got introduced to something called the law. Okay. Was there anybody in your family a lawyer? No, I'm the first lawyer in my family. So I was a first-generation law student. What about college? First-generation college student. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what's your nationality? Um, Puerto Rican with black and Mexican descent. Puerto Rican with African and Mexican. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so all right. So Resilience is in my blood. Resilience. <laughs> well, this forty-five would probably call you something else, but okay, mm-hmm. from another type of country. <laughs> For being from those places, Puerto Rican with African and Mexican descent, growing up in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. All right, deciding to do law. So what did your parents and family members think when you said you wanted to do law? And did they support you? Absolutely supported me. My father passed away when I was younger. Mm. My mom was ecstatic that I was going to law school. Thank you. And... I have to say that I had a lot of family support because law school is very intense. And it was hard because we are very family oriented. And it's hard to say you can't come home when you're in the same city um, for dinner or a holiday because you're studying for exams. I remember one birthday, they actually came to me. (laughs) And that was really sweet and nice. (laughs) Was it your birthday or somebody else's? It was my birthday, so they, they came with a bottle of wine. We did a toast, and, you know, they stayed for like a half an hour, and then they left. That's wonderful. Yeah. All right, so in this class with Brian, you found out mm-hmm. about co-ops. I did. That That's wonderful because in all of my educational training, I've got a couple master's degrees. I've, I've, I've been in college uh, four, five, six, seven, eight years, and I taught college for 10 years, and none of that time did I hear anything about co-ops, either in college or taking classes. I didn't know anything about co-ops. So great that you found out about them in college. So uh, did you help to start this Colors, this organization, this restaurant? Yes. Um, we helped. It was after 9-11, and... Um, the organizers of Rock New York came to us and said, we want to create employment opportunities for those who have lost employment, but we want to do something that's more transformative and we want to form it as a worker co-op. And we were very excited. I was very excited to help. Um, I had learned about it in my law school classroom and um, partnered up with the clinic and we represented them in starting the the worker co-op as a restaurant. Okay, and the clinic is Rock USA. I don't know. the 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 clinic was at the law school, um, and that's where I learned about worker co-ops. And Rock New York was the nonprofit that helped to seed and start the worker cooperative restaurant called Colors. Okay, so I was getting Rock New York. Uh, mixed up with Rock USA, which does the um, mobile home parks. Right. Okay. All right. So that's how you got into it, and you helped to start. So did you ever go to eat at Colors? Yes, the many times. Mm-hmm. And how was the food? The food is delicious. The service was great, exceptional, um, a really it felt like a family environment, um, and it felt like you were visiting someone's home. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry, I never got to. I did not have not eaten there yet. I have to do that. 
So I just real quickly, I just figured this out. I was writing, and I I was born in New York. My mother and family moved there when she was sixteen from D.C. And my father, and my mother met in World War II, and he's from West Virginia, and and he grabbed her and took her back to West Virginia. I told him that was the smartest thing he ever did, because. She, they both had a world view, uh, being even Southern West Virginia, a, a world view. And so I, I did, I found out I am, I'm half breed. I'm half urban and half country and half city and half country. So I like New York. Um, and I also like the country. Um, give you the, the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, the other thing I found out that New Yorkers, and I was scared of New Yorkers when I first would start going up there in junior high and high school because, you know, they didn't they didn't talk on the streets like we did in West Virginia. You just spoke to everybody. But I found that New Yorkers are family friendly and nice, uh, just like in West Virginia. So there's a lot of similarities when you get to know people in New York. Um, really, really great human beings. And then after I got my master's in and uh, mathematics, I taught at City University in um, in Jamaica, Queens. Oh, and okay. Stayed with, stayed with my aunt and uncle <clears throat> in uh, Bayside and would visit my great aunt in Harlem. Um, so uh, I I got to know New York. I knew it was hard to live there with, with on a teacher's salary. I could not live there. I only, taught, only stayed there one year. But the Puerto Ricanians and the African Americans would fight for the crumbs on a table in at York and at, around. And I, it was just it was sad to see us fight. And I found the same thing. I went to city uh, teach at San Diego State after that, and it was the same thing with Mexican Americans and African Americans. And so it's sort of like, well how, well, how can we get, how can we come together, and create our own loaf of bread and have the whole loaf and not be fighting for what somebody would throw us off their table. Um, and that's why I like co-ops also. Okay. I love co-ops as a matter of fact. So Colors was one of the projects that you work on. What are some other projects you worked on? So we've worked on many projects. We've started, and I say we because I run a clinic at um, CUNY Law School, the Community and Economic Development Clinic. So I supervise students in the third year of their law school experience and they represent clients and I supervise them. So we have started cleaning co-ops. We have worked with elected officials to help draft legislation in support of co-ops here in New York and as well as in Bermuda. Um, we did a in Bermuda? Work of one vote. Yeah. So as a co-founder of One Worker, One Vote, um, we did a delegation to Bermuda where we looked at their laws to see how they can develop a worker cooperative statute that would best fit their needs. Um, so we did that. And we've did also they, been... Did they enact those statutes in, in Bermuda? Um, did they pass a those laws? round. Um, because, you know, I'm not licensed to practice in Bermuda. There's a second, mm. there's a second round where they will use our research for their local attorneys to um, create the legislation. Okay, so the Community and Economic Development Clinic as a part of CUNY um, School of Law. And so mm -hmm. you've worked on a number of things there. But uh, you, you were one of the founders of One Worker, One Vote, the Michael Peck people? Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I love Michael Peck. He is, my only problem with Michael Peck is uh, he'll say uh, a short story in one breath. <laughs> I have to break it down. He's <laughs> <laughs> got so much information. Uh, so you have to start one worker, one vote. So you go to Cincinnati to the Cincinnati Union uh, annual meetings or buy-in. Yeah, meetings. the Union Co-op Symposium, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to see you at the um, Network for Developing Conscious Communities uh, Worker Co-op Conference last year as well. Yes, Ron Hans is. Uh, yeah, it, that's amazing uh, the work he's doing for for that. And I just talked to him the other day, so he's doing a lot of work. So I know I've seen you around a couple times, uh, mm-hmm. two or three times. Um, so you you've been doing this work, and I, I just I've been looking at what Bermuda is doing with the uh, coronavirus. Um, they, they're shutting down. They've shut down the island. Um, they've taken it very serious. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've got a minute to go. And so when we come back, before we take our first break, when we come back, I really want to talk about some more about these projects that you're working on and get into the need to get the vote out and how we can, as cooperatives, fight the coronavirus and what it may look like on the other end of it. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Welcome back to the program is Everything Cooperative, and my name is Vernon Oaks, and we have Carmen Hutus Noble on the line with us from New York. WAL makes a great partner because information is power, and the whole idea for this program is to give you information about cooperatives, such that if you learn about cooperatives, you can use this information and either start your own or look for co-ops to do business with. And we'll get into what, why you want to do that uh, as we go through this program. So, Carmen, we were talking about Colors, the restaurant that you have started. Mm-hmm. You said one of the reasons you were doing this after 9-11 was to create employment opportunities. So Correct. why did Colors help to create employment opportunities? How, how did that happen? How did that work? Well, the organizers of Rock New York, one of the main organizers, there were two, was actually a worker. Um, at Windows on the World before 9-11. So after 9-11, a lot of workers were displaced. And one of the unions approached them to say, let's create employment opportunities. And the organizers said, yes, let's definitely do that. But let's make it more transformative and give workers more power. Um, You know, traditionally, workers in the restaurant industry aren't treated that well. Um, especially mm-hmm. if you are back of the house. So that is the approach that they took, and that is the um, work that we did with them. And it was so really it was, important because it was also inspirational because once people saw that a group of immigrants could start a high-scale restaurant in New York City, which is really hard to do, they usually fail within a year, it really gave people confidence that they could do it too. Um, and so I never want to underestimate the power of 
inspiration and innovation. So immigrants, uh, you just yes. mentioned that. Who were, what, where were they from? Um, from all different nationalities. Uh, some were from Egypt, some were from India, um, just different places. But it was also a beautiful thing to see the solidarity in terms of, you know, a multicultural coalition to support and create this work. Um, and a lot of the projects that we work on are with people who have been traditionally marginalized. So we have started a lot of cleaning cooperatives, and that's usually women of color, um, sometimes immigrants, sometimes not. Uh, we have also been working with a group that was called, I know you had Roger Green on your show, the Coalition to Transform Interfaith, which is a number of medical centers in Brooklyn. And the idea is to use the hospitals as an anchor institution to scale up the union co-ops that would be created through the supply chains that are created in terms of hydroponic farms and growing food that locally sourced and could be delivered to homebound patients and also um, to the hospital's cafeteria and as well as bringing back some manufacturing to New York City and creating hospital furniture um, as a way to tap into the local economy and local workers to benefit from the work that's being done. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of, the, one of the big things about the anchor institution model is that it's really an opportunity to scale co-ops because one of the critiques has been that, you know, we can let a thousand flowers bloom, but they're small. But in my mind, um, scale doesn't necessarily have to mean size. It can mean breadth in terms of, you know, it can mean what? being widespread. It can mean breadth in terms of being widespread. Um, but the, in terms of your original question of, like, why work a co-op um, and in the context of COVID-19, I think one of the beautiful things that you see, unfortunately, we don't, we would not want to see the virus at all, but is the principle of intercooperation. So you have a, one example is a co-op called Opportunity Threads that repurposes work to create masks for Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is one of the um, oldest worker co-ops. And also One Worker, One Vote also volunteered to kind of gather masks and other um, protective equipment for home health care workers. Because right now, hospitals are not only saturated with patients, but at the same time, do not have the adequate protection that they need. Um, so to be able to... And people, rightfully so, are focusing on nurses and doctors, but there are other people who are kind of putting their lives on the line to help others, including the health aides at CHCA. So getting them the equipment and masks that they need is equally important, as well as the cleaning co-ops that are created. Um, and anyone that's really out there as essential employees should have these protections. And co-ops with another principle of community of care are really keen and aware of that and and try to help the community in that way. 
So you you just talked about principle uh, six with cooperation among cooperatives. You call it intercooperative, so yeah. intercooperation, mm-hmm. and community of care. I like better than what it's called for number seven. Principle seven is um, social responsibility or caring for that community. Well, it is community right. care, of care. Um, so those are some of the things that co-ops automatically do is in our uh, co-ops DNA. But I want to go back to, you said the reasons. One is after 9-11 and colors, it was to create jobs, but also to give uh, more transfer, being more transformative is giving the workers power, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And you like the solidarity. You like that it was successful and it showed others that it could be successful uh, Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhard, who's a uh, who's written a book, Collective Carriage, said that it was something like um, co-ops have a ninety percent uh, success rate after five years, and ninety percent of them are still in operation. Where the normal um, capitalistic model, uh, after five years, there's only ten that are still around, have their doors open, are successful. They have much more failures. And part of that is because it takes longer for co-ops to get started. They need help like you, the technical support, and they get the the, the fifth principle, which is the one I like, is uh, education. So they have to be trained. They have to learn how to do the business. They have to learn how to work together. They have to learn how to make decisions. And right. in doing that, some don't get started for right reasons, but they also the ones that get started much higher chance of being successful. So this all of the reasons why co-ops, and it gives people the, the Number one thing, Carmen, I'd, I'd like to see if you found this out. Uh, Dame Pauline Green, who was the uh, president of the International Cooperative Alliance, said on this show that co-ops uh, help people to come out of poverty with dignity. Have you seen that? I have. And um, recently we did a joint um, uh, workshop with um, the folks from Baltimore um, to meet the Baltimore Cooperative Academy, to meet folks from New York City's um, cooperative community and talk to each other about lessons learned. Um, And one of the things that really stood out to me, and actually um, I'm I'm a sensitive person, brought a tear to my eye, a happy tear, was one of the women explained that with her new position and being an owner, that not only was she treated better in terms of having access to profits and better pay and better working conditions, but at home, her children saw her differently and looked at her in a different light. And so did her husband. And that it gave her a lot of of joy and pride to be able to be a role model to her children in that way. And also with more, you know, when you're paid, which you should be paid, um, more opportunity to spend time at home with your children um, and, and be able to send them to enrichment programs or other opportunities. So I think the dignitary piece is often the dignitary assault are what is are one of the main reasons why people start to look for an alternative. And then in building that alternative, making sure that they embed the dignitary aspects into 
the actual model. So if for just for example, um, when we were creating colors, because it was well known that the back of the house is treated more poorly in traditional restaurants, and setting up the governance was to make sure that the back of the house had an equal voice to the front of the house. Um, so I think when people come together to create co-ops, they're really thinking about governance in a democratic way and an empowering way and a way to bring dignity to the work itself and to the workers. Wow. We have to take our second break here, but it's mm -hmm. like uh, this whole piece on dignity. And when you say the back of house, I think you're talking about, because I've done this before, is the, the bus boys or bus people right. and the people the runners the dishes. And yeah, all of this stuff, and maybe even I found I was a short order cook once, get cussed at almost from the from the waitress people. So yeah, that's the back of the house. Okay, uh, we're going to take our second break, and I really want to come back and talk about voting and this coronavirus and what it looks like on the other end of it. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This program is being brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank. They have also been a wonderful partner. They provided financial support, and they provided encouragement, enthusiasm, and ideas on what are the, some of the things that we can talk about and who could be on this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. So, Carmen, uh, you've been working in marginalized communities, low-income communities, and you've been creating these different uh, co-ops, and you've talked about the reasons for these co-ops. But in this world of corona coronavirus, what have you seen that co-ops could help? Or if there were co-ops, more co-ops, that some of the problems that we're having now we would not be having? Right. Well, I think the, the one example of Opportunity Threads repurposing to create masks for CHCA is one of those. And also there's a network within New York City where worker co-ops worker co are sharing resources, including how their businesses are being hit by negatively by the coronavirus and what are some of the resources out there. And Luckily, we have a great small business association working really closely, small business services working really closely with us, and folks are sharing information and what they need and what, what resources are out there. But I do think that we would see some of the care being provided differently, and this is not to be disparaging of nurses or doctors who I, high, I hold in high esteem. This is more about administration. I think this, the fact that there are so many hospitals in New York that do not have um, masks or other proper equipment and have been asking nurses and doctors to actually share masks or to use masks way past their kind of expiration date or not have masks at all. I think in a worker co-op, you would not see that you work with co-ops would make sure that their members have the supply of masks unless there was truly a shortage and you couldn't get it. 
And I think that's important because it's really about valuing the lives of everyone. And as what we see right now, all of our essential workers, people of color, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, that have to go outside every day and kind of take the risk. And I recently said to someone, they're playing Russian roulette with people's lives. And I think that that is definitely a outgrowth of capitalism in terms of who it is that gets to work from home. I'm one of those people. Who it is that gets to go to their second home outside of New York City. I'm not one of those people. And then who it is that has to service others in terms of grocery workers, MTA employees. So these folks need masks and protective equipment as well. And it's really it's really scary for them to have to be out there. And I have family members that are in this category and then worry about coming home and exposing other family members um, to the virus. And then, you know, including a family member who works for the Board of Elections and thinking about, you know, we definitely want to get out the vote. We definitely want to be counted for the census. But to get out the vote, we need to make sure that we're asking people to vote in a safe way or not asking them, making sure that they are allowed to vote in a safe way. So I, I think that that is also a critical piece. And I know that there's a lot going on, but there needs to be a focus on that if we really want to get out the vote and, and turn out the numbers that we want to. Okay, so I want to go all the way back to Russian roulette. Uh, okay. I got the picture when you said that. I, I got the picture so clearly. And here's how. In Russian roulette, you normally, when you see it, there's a gun, and you mm-hmm. there's normally six bullets to the whole six bullets, and you put one bullet in that gun, then you spin the chamber, and you click it back, and you stick it to your head, and you pull it to trigger. So you have a five out of the six chances of not getting your head, your brains blown out in Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. You have a five out of six chance. So there's only one out of six chances that the bullet would come up and kill you. But in this environment, for those marginalized people, those essential workers, which I had not thought of until you just said it, are mainly um, marginalized people or people of color uh, that are providing these essential services and don't get paid a lot of money and not respected very well and expect right. it. But now... Instead of having one bullet in the chamber, you have two, three, maybe four, five bullets in the chamber. Uh, right. uh, what's the likelihood of catching this disease and then therefore dying from it or bringing it back home to your family members and the seniors and the elders? And one of the reasons they stopped school was the kids would not necessarily die from it or have a less chance of dying from it, but they could bring it home to their grandparents and then they would end up dying from it. So it's like, for family members and older family members, it might be four bullets in that chamber and you put it up against your head to pull a trigger. You have a much higher chance of dying from this virus right. from these essential workers. There's Particularly without the mask. Of, I'm sorry. I got right, the no, picture. Go <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I was okay. going to say the other concern is that, you know, it's it's the elderly is also folks with underlying conditions, including diabetes and including asthma. And from the Bronx, I can tell you, we have the highest asthma rate. And, yeah, I thought um, it was here in the district. People, okay. And as people of color, 
have a, a higher degree of um, diabetes. So again, it's kind of it, it, it feels very cruel to have people who are so vulnerable playing Russian roulette. And you're right, because I was going to say, not that I really watch these kind of movies, but it's almost like when you see the scene where the person plays Russian roulette, but the other person is making them continue to spin it, right? Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. if it just was one out of six, if you have to keep spinning, eventually you're going to get hit. Well, your chances, um, your probability, the math that I taught, the probability gets to be higher and higher the more time you spend it. Yeah. Exactly, which is really frightening, and it is very disconcerting. Well, disconcerting is not even the right word, but a lot of people on social media and in other contexts have been saying, and I agree with this, we really need to look at what's occurring And in terms of essential workers and in terms of how our economy is structured, there are certain things that we cannot do without, that we are willing to put other human beings' lives at risk, then those should be nationalized or become worker cooperatives. That should not be at the whims of capitalists and capitalism. Wow. Okay. You've painted the picture extremely clear to me in ways that I have not thought about it. Now, there is a uh, clinic in um, Madison, Wisconsin, that's a health clinic that's owned by the workers. It's a worker-owned clinic. I know it's owned by the patients. It's a consumer-owned clinic. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, I wonder what that group is doing now, how well they are faring for particular things like, did they stockpile the uh, PPEs, that right. protection uh, mm-hmm. equipment, uh, and how well are those people treated. But it's also sad that these essential workers get paid so little. They they, they are essential to people's lives, to our everyday life, uh, whether policemen, firemen, uh, the grocery store folks, the people that pack the food, that carry the food, uh, even in the, in the colors in the restaurants that may prepare, prepare the food for takeout. They are central things that we need, and they're paid the least amount on the, on the scale, um, which gives the capitalists the second home mm-hmm. or third home to go to, and they can get tested. That's what's mm-hmm. also interesting. The, the football players and basketball players can get tested where that person that is getting that food or taking that food out or doing work in there can't get tested. So he won't even know if he's taking it home. He or she won't know if they're taking it home to their family. Now, it's a sad state of, of our economy, of what values we place, and which is one of the reasons I like co-ops. Right. The values are so different. Okay, so where do we go from here, Carmen? I'm, I've got the picture. You've painted a clear picture for me. Yeah, you know, in in my mind, we really do have to scale worker cooperatives um, in the sense of creating workplace democracy. And um, the traditional model, our capitalist firms, need to be more on the periphery and worker co-ops need to be more to scale along with nationalizing um, some of the industries. I mean... We bailed out, we being the government, bailed out the banks in 2008, and yet there is no relief package yet that really includes everyone in terms of 
all these people who have been laid off and cannot pay their rent or cannot pay their mortgage. Um, the, the idea that you give it to CEOs and it trickles down has been proven wrong so many times that it's really exasperating as to why, I mean, we've been indoctrinated for a long time, but as to why we keep holding on to that ideal. And especially now with COVID-19, I think the other thing is that it does not discriminate. So you can be wealthy and you, you don't have to be marginalized to be affected. And if you think about who's bringing you your food, you would want to make sure that they have sick days and aren't made to work while they're sick. Because even though that in itself should be a, a time when you say stay home and rest, that should be enough. But if it's not enough for certain people, then the other thing is, well, then that worker is going to touch the food that you're going to eat. So now are you concerned? And really kind of getting back to we truly are all in this together. We're not all working at the same aims, but we're all at, in this together. And given that, and given the um, pandemic, I think that it has revealed to more people really how precarious our lives are. Like most people do not even have $400 in their account in case of an emergency. 47% of Americans, like half of Americans, if they have an emergency that costs $400, do not have it. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's very, for me, it's very infuriating because there are some things that can be, yes, because there are some things that can be done right away. And, you know, the people who kind of are stuck in analysis paralysis, that really exasperates me because literally people are dying and people are being exposed to a deadly infection. Carmen, I don't think they're in analysis. I don't think they're in analysis of paralysis, and we're we're going to come back and talk about that after our final break. But I think it's more their focus. Uh, The focus isn't necessarily on how you bail out everyday people. How do you help everyday people uh, pay their mortgages and get food and get rest and get the medical the um, the 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 need the needs of the everyday people isn't the focus. So I don't think they're right. analyzing it to death. I think it's that the folks have the wrong, they have another, that's not the wrong necessarily, but they have another focus. And that's, right. we can bail out the banks that caused the problem in the first place in 07, 08, but we won't bail out the people that did not cause this problem um, and that are getting uh, uh, hurt by it in major kinds of ways, including death. But let's come back and talk about ways of that, how this co-op model, worker co-ops particularly, can help on the other side of this pandemic. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, the host of Everything Cooperative and professor and attorney. Karma Hutus Noble is our guest today, and we're talking about worker co-ops, the benefits of worker cooperatives, the work that she's done to help start them, and uh, the coronavirus and how the worker cooperative model, the model of co-ops, 
um, would have helped everyday workers if we'd had more of them and what we can do next. And so what we can do next is what I really want to talk about in this last segment. But Carmen, um, essential workers are mainly uh, people of color, marginalized people, and that are very much at risk and families are at risk having to go out there every day without protective uh, garments. And that's just not the doctors and the nurses, but home care workers and people that handle food need gloves and they need masks. Uh, mm-hmm. All of these different people need these same, if similar, if not the same kind of protective gear. Um, so it's, it's kind of like what, if we had had, if we have or, what would it take to create more worker co-ops? What do we, because you've been helping to get laws straight in New York and then also going down to Bermuda and working. But mm-hmm. as a country, what do we have to do to get more worker co-ops going on in America and in the world? Because this is a pandemic of the world problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that one of the things in order to grow more worker co-ops is to have more worker co-op education. Um, in terms of people who are familiar with the models, a lot of the business schools are not teaching worker cooperative business models, and that's a shame. And the other thing is funding. Um, some type of businesses don't require a lot of funding for startup, like the cleaning co-op. Others do require a lot of um, funding for startup, like the restaurant, for example. I think that, you know, in my mind, This is probably going to be unpopular with some people, but this is truly what I believe. There are so many industries that are asking to be bailed out that do not operate on low margins. So they already have enough money. They're not hurting for money. So when the airlines are asking to be bailed out, no, let's turn them, let's turn the airlines into worker cooperatives then. The same thing with MTA. Stop asking for bailouts. You know, the complaints that they usually make against people who are marginalized can be applied to them. Where was their planning? Why didn't they save? So I think that this is a unique opportunity in which people really see the greed and that this is really not about you worked hard, so you deserve to be paid, you know, 450 times more than your employee who's really working. So I think we should look at that as a as a policy in terms of nationalizing certain industries and turning certain industries into worker co-ops. The other thing that worker co-ops are doing to kind of support each other is right now kind of, you know, doing a survey of what people's needs are and then trying to figure out how to meet those needs. And I will say at a faster pace than some of our elected officials. So when I said analysis paralysis, um, that probably wasn't the best framing. But what was what I was really thinking was that there's a there was such a lack of planning. And in terms of testing for consequences, because I'm a contract lawyer, I think that that wasn't part of their planning process. That would be definitely part of the planning process for a worker co-op that has the principle of caring for not only their own members, but the community as well. And what we've been hearing a lot, at least in New York City, is that we don't, we don't know from elected officials, they don't know what to do, or they need to, more time to figure out how to do it safely. We've been able to get masks for people on the ground faster than they have been able to do it 
from people who are more powerful and have more powerful positions. And I don't think that this is anything new um, in terms of we've always known that within community, we have to help each other because no one's coming to save us, literally. And right now, and I don't know if people know this, right now, New York hospitals are already starting to triage who would get ventilator care and who won't. You know, these are very dark times, and I understand we don't want to um, cause any panic in people, but we also need to be aware of this. So when we come out on the other side, we come with policies that avoid this happening again. Well, I did not know that New York hospitals were doing it, but I know that hospitals all around the world will begin to do that, particularly when you start talking about we may be looking at 1.5 million deaths in the U.S. if we don't get control over it. And if we get control over it, we can be looking at between 100 and 240,000 deaths. Well, we've only had like 5,000 deaths, but look at 200,000 deaths. What would that look like? And if we get up to where we're talking about one and a half million deaths, and you're talking about this year, okay? Right. You're talking about in the next three months. If we get up to that, it's going to have to be triage because you can't, you just Everybody can't have a ventilator. So who gets it? Okay, who but gets it? And it, the guy, I am African-American. I'm 72 years mm -hmm. old with diabetes and hypertension. They're not going to put me on a ventilator. So I've been at Howland for a month now. So I, I got this very early on that I am one of those that the bullet, the gun has five bullets in it when I play Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if I'm if I'm not really really careful, it's got six in it. I'm I'm ready to die at seventy two, seventy two. Now I might not, I may not make it to seventy three if I don't take care of this, if I don't watch it. So I mean, it's for real, real to me. And yeah, I got that they're going to do triage. I'm, you said that they're already doing it. That somebody's deciding who's going to get that ventilator, or who's going to get that medicine, or which doctor is going to look at them even. Because you got you right. got. Shortages on all of this. Yeah, I, I got it. It's real, real for me, Carmen. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I know. And, and so real for so many others. And um, hopefully, Bernie, you just passed 100. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it's, it is really important. And, and there, you know, triage is key. But we can also, we can't pretend that there's not also racial discrimination within the hospital system. Um, and the mortality rate for black women giving birth is much higher than any other category of women. And then we had in New York City where it was a point where they were saying you couldn't you couldn't bring anyone into the delivery room with you, no partner with you in the, the delivery room. And to me, that's especially frightening if I'm an African-American woman and I know what my chances are already. And then you're telling me that my partner can't be there with me to advocate on my behalf. Now, thankfully, the governor has said that policy has to go and, and people can have somebody there with them. But the thing is, like, who gets to make the triage decisions? And I used to hold, and I still, in some respects, doctors on the highest pedestal, but they are human too. And they have implicit bias and they have explicit bias. So there needs to be and maybe more monitoring of how these policies are being drawn up and how they are being implemented in order to safeguard more vulnerable and 
marginalized communities. And part of that is too, is, you know, is back to, you know, a lot of people say your vote doesn't matter. Your vote matters or they wouldn't put so much energy into suppressing it. Would you say that again, please? Amen, sister. I said, a lot of people say that their vote doesn't matter, but I say your vote matters or they wouldn't put so much energy into suppressing it. Carmen, what I've I've looked at over history, the people in power, they they talk about they want to have democracy, but it's for they want democracy for the people in power. They don't want right. democracy for the people that are workers or people that are providing the essential services. They want democracy for the people in power. So there's two things that they take away, and that's education and the right to vote. Those are the two things that people in power often do for the essential workers or marginalized people, and that's what keeps them marginalized. So we've got to make sure that we get people out and they get the education. That's why we have this program on. That's why I'm so glad that you've come on so we can get people awake to say your vote counts. Get educated. Get educated on this coronavirus. Get educated mm-hmm. on uh, cooperatives. Learn it. Now, we only have a, a minute left. What would you like to leave people with, Carmen? I would like to leave people with that there there is power within each of us and there is more power when we come together collectively to demand basic human rights. And I think there are a lot of people doing mobilization work. There are a lot of people organizing. But you're right. We need to focus on education and getting out the vote and getting out the vote in a safe way. Having people stand on over, in overcrowded lines to vote and then possibly ex- be exposed will have people who have underlying health concerns or perhaps you're not you, but perhaps someone in a similar situation as you who is not who would feel like, no, I'm not going to go out because they could literally be a, a life or death decision that they're making. So I think that. We need to organize to make sure that elected officials and governments are making sure that the voting polls are safe, you know, um, and to get out the vote and to be counted and not to be afraid to be counted, including our undocumented um, communities. Carmen, thank you so much for being on. I look forward when this is over and I can come up and visit you in New York and we can go to Colors and have dinner and really enjoy family and working together. Thank you so much, everybody. That would be out great. There. Okay. Please uh, see you next week and live cooperatively. Thanks a lot. Your news talk station.